Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. I'm Andrew Popel. Today I am joined on the show by Paul Ashford-Harris. Now, the Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, I broadcast a show called Final Draft. It's out of the studios of 2SER in Sydney, here in Australia. At Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, whether it be debut authors or the classics, the authors that you know and love. Each of these conversations is a chance to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling, a way to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. To SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, as I said, today on the show, I'm joined by Paul Ashford-Harris. His new book is called Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. It is an historical romp. It is a chance to look at our current era through a different lens by going back a hundred and more years to some of the historical origins of the conflicts we have today. It's a really interesting trip and I hope you'll join me on it. Join me as we discover Paul Ashford Harris's Love Oil and the Fortunes of War. Hi, how are you? Hello, Paul. I'm well. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join me. That's okay. No, pleasure. Paul is the author of books for adults and children, as well as two plays, and he's joining me today with his new historical novel, Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. Paul, welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, pleased to be here. Um, I foregrounded that this is an historical novel, and I want to I want to broadly centre us uh, in the early twentieth, or well, the late nineteenth, and the early early twentieth century, a period of unrest in Europe. And I might leave it there and get you to foreground a little bit uh, more. Give us uh, give us some more detail on what we're going to be talking about. But as we begin, I'm really looking forward to unpacking the history and the craft that's brought Love Oil and the Fortunes of War to the page. But I thought before we get into any details, we need to establish the ground we're standing on. Now, it's been years since the phrase fake news entered the lexicon. And in a world that can't even seem to decide what's happening in the here and now, I wondered what is your philosophy for looking back, for telling, for crafting history? Well, you can only find out what you can find out. And you're going back you know, over 100 years more. Um, so I've tried as best I can to um, dig out the lives of the three main contenders. And um, But at the end of the day, who knows what they were really like. I think it's sort of clear, uh, it's pretty clear from their history and, you know, more or less what they were like. But uh, um, <clears throat> yeah, I've had to, I've made up the dialogue, obviously, and the meetings as well, because, you know, who knows how these meetings occurred uh but what i do know for a fact is of course the connection between the three main uh main characters and that it took a while before i actually connected the dots up on that in fact it took quite a long time uh at first i mean i you know i i, I thought fisher was a very interesting character gertrude obviously is a, probably the best known of the three but oh, William Knox Darcy is a pretty interesting guy as well. And his the way he arrived in Australia and what happened to his family and then what happened when he got here is, um, you know, well, I thought it was pretty interesting as well. And when I found that they actually, the dots connected, then that 
that really uh, made me think, well, this is a pretty interesting story. You mentioned that you've mentioned each of your main characters. We are going to flesh them out a little bit more for the listener in a sec. But I wondered, you, you mentioned Gertrude being the the best known of them. What does that look like on the coalface? Where are the sources? Um, wh- uh, where are you going to for the information that you're then turning into this vivid landscape? Well, well fortunately, there's, there's quite a lot of written, written about Gertrude Bell. And uh, there's a great book about it, very detailed. So that was incredibly helpful. Um, what it wasn't quite so helpful was um, when they made a movie about her and Nicole Kidman was the played Gertrude Bell and um, it was really made for, for Hollywood. So incredibly, it sort of missed the, it missed the most dynamic or interesting bits of her life. It sort of stopped before, before you know, that, that got fleshed out. So I'm not sure that anyone that watched the movie would really would really realise what a remarkable woman Gertrude Bell actually was. Um, but, you know, that's, that film is something that you know, quite a lot of people have seen. But I think if you watched the film, you would, you would not think, well, I better go and explore a bit more about this, this woman. Mm. It, doesn't really, it doesn't really suggest that you might want to do that. All right, we've we, we, we've dangled for too long. I'm gonna. I want to pick up that thread in just a sec, but we do need we need to introduce the listeners, and perhaps we can do that by going to where it all began for you. Can you introduce these central figures and how their story grabbed you? Yeah, I I, I think the first one I came across was was William Knox Darcy, and in some ways he was the hardest person. As far as I know, there's never been actually a book written about him. Um, and then I read Jan Morris's book, Jack, Jackie, Jackie Fisher's Face, about Jackie Fisher, and thought, gee, what an extraordinary, extraordinary man he was. And, um, and then I connected, I, got, I realized that Darcy and Fisher were connected, and I could see where they had met. Um, and then came the question of Gertrude Bell. Well, Gertrude, at first I thought there probably wasn't any connection, but then to my astonishment, I realized that. Her half-sister had married Admiral Richmond, who turned out to be Jackie Fisher's principal advisor. So in a way, Admiral, Admiral Richmond plays quite a big part in the book, and he's, he's probably the sanest of all three of them. <laughs> um, so he, he's a sort of um, go-to character, if you like, um, and that's why the book ends up with, with him after the others have all died. So we have William Darcy. He is an expat uh, British, uh, made made good, or oh, we can interrogate that later. Made his fortune in yep. uh, in Queensland. We have Jackie Fisher, who um, I'm probably going to get the title wrong, becomes uh, sort of a commander of the British Navy, and Gertrude Bell, who I mean, how do I even lasso her achievements? A, a polyglot, um, an adventurer, <laughs> just so many different things. It is the early 20th century, and uh, well, we all know what's about to happen in Europe, across the world. Um, what, is the, what is the central concern, though, that um, you're opening up and these three characters are coming together to per- perhaps change history? Well, um, Jackie Fisher was the first sea lord. So the first sea lord is actually the, the commander of the Navy. So the first lord of the Admiralty is a political appointment, and that actually was Winston Churchill eventually. Mm-hmm. Churchill didn't know that much about the Navy, but, but Fisher did. And Fisher was 
an incredibly bright outsider. So the British Navy uh, was class riddled and uh, hadn't really got over the great victory by Nelson and Trafalgar 100 years before. So when Fisher came along, he said he actually called um, he called the British Navy, which had 440 ships, it was huge, a miser's hoard of useless junk. Well, that was an incredible thing for the first leader of the Admiralty to say about his own Navy. Mm. What he was really saying was, you haven't modernised it, you haven't done anything. Half these ships have still got sail, um, and they're all driven by coal, and actually we need to switch to oil. It's much more efficient for a whole series of reasons I won't go into here, but the only problem was they had lots of coal in Wales, but they had no oil at all. Um, and the only place they could really get it from was Standard Oil, who they knew would just have them over a barrel, so they couldn't rely on that. Uh, or Shell, and Shell was really a Dutch company, and the man who ran Shell, uh, who was nicknamed the Napoleon of Oil, would you believe? He he, he was, uh, you know, he, you couldn't really rely on him either, so there was no way they could switch the Navy to oil unless somehow they came across some. Well, that's where Darcy came in. And uh, Darcy had made a fortune in Rockhampton out of the Mount Morgan mine, which was the largest gold mine in the world eventually. Um, got, um, got tired of being in Rockhampton. Strange, you might think. But anyway, um, decided to head back to the UK. And I guess in some ways wreak revenge on the terrible things that had happened to him, which had been what had caused him to end up in Rockhampton. Um, and when he was there, spent his money on horse racing and having a good time, and then someone came along and said, look, you can get an exploration licence effectively about three-quarters of Persia, virtually nothing from the Shah, he's a bit short of dough. So he sort of thought that would be a great adventure, so he did that. And um, they drilled and they drilled and they drilled and they didn't find any oil. They sort of knew it was there, but they just couldn't find it. Anyway, eventually in 1908, just when literally Burma Oil, who was his partner at that time, was saying, look, let's get rid of the drills. We're wasting our time. You know, we spent a lot of money. This is not going anywhere. And literally, the, the, the command came from the UK to close the whole thing down. They had the biggest gusher in history. And so suddenly, Fisher had his oil. Um, but then the issue was, how do you deal with these people? You know, we're not, we're not, we don't know them. You know, we're used to doing what we want. Um, and that's where Gertrude Bell came in because she had explored the whole of that area of Mesopotamia and she knew she could speak Arabic, she could speak the dialects. Um, so she knew how it worked. And so I confected that um, Fisher was smart enough to say, this is effectively my sister-in-law. Um, let's sit down and you tell me how we're going to deal with these people. Mm. Um, so that's how the book sort of unwinds. It strikes me that history is equal parts meticulous research and shrewd creativity. Nobody's going to read a story that's not compelling. But also it depends on where you're standing as to how you tell it. And this story logically is about the way that sort of, I guess, the string of events lead to, um, you know, the, the outcomes of, I guess, not just the First World War, but the course of the 20th, 20th century after that, um, that battle. But an, a big concern of 
love oil and the fortunes of war is the development of fossil fuel exploration throughout the 19th and the early 20th centuries. And I wanted to kind of zone in on the the section of the book where you talk about uh, prospecting gold uh, mining in uh, Australia. And you note of an outcome of mining in Queensland that Ironstone Mountain became one of the most polluted mine sites in Australia. And I mean, we can focus in on Australia or take a sort of a, a more global perspective, but we now live in a world, I guess, created by this drive for progress and profit. Did you get a, a sense of the characters as you would, you know, the, the, these historical, I keep calling them characters, historical figures, that they yeah. had any sense of that legacy of destruction that they were passing on as they prospected, as they discovered, as they developed? Well, um, I, th- I think Gertrude certainly did. Mm. Um, I mean, she was trying to preserve the. Uh, she believed that this, the birth of civilization was effectively in the Middle East and Mesopotamia, and it was important to um, preserve the sites there. And Babylon was one of them, which was quite close to where the oil discovery was. So she was very, she was very keen to do that. And um, I guess she was faced with the issue that she had had quite a bit to do with the British Army. Mm. Uh, just couldn't, you know, I mean, couldn't believe how, um, you know, what the way the army behaved anyway, and was faced with really thinking to herself, I can, inf- I might be able to influence Fisher, his family, he's, in- he's intelligent, Richmond's family, and Winston's, Winston's the same. Mm. Um, so if I don't help, this oil is going to be explored by someone. Now, if the Russians do it, mm. Germans, I'll have no influence, whatever. So, it was in a way, it was a sort of, I suppose, for her, probably the best of a bad bunch. Um, and I think Fisher and and certainly Churchill uh, definitely got it. But you know, we have to be careful what we do here. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, and also she was a close friend of T. Lawrence, and he was trying to do the same thing. So they sort of teamed up. And, but in the end, of course, Lawrence, both of them were really betrayed. The pressures of the war really got too great. And I haven't gone into it very much, but if you go right to the end of the First World War, um, the deals that were done to carve up, um, carve up Mesopotamia or carve, carve up the Middle East um, are really still there if you look at the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And they were done without Gertrude or uh, T. E. Lawrence really knowing what was going on. So um, there was duplicity in all directions, basically. Everybody everybody was, was uh, effectively the French and the British carved it up between themselves. I mean, you've been, you've been waiting around in there. I mean, presumably the research, the writing of this has taken you years. You've been waiting around in this. Do you think people properly understand that we, we live in the world that is effectively... Uh, we're suffering in the world that is the effect of a few countries trying to carve up the rest of the world against the wishes of its inhabitants. Exactly. Nothing's changed. I mean, that's the terrifying thing about it because you'd think that having, you know, lost 40 million lives or whatever the number was in the first world war, and then probably another 40 million afterwards with the black death, not the black death, but the, the, um, yeah, anyway. The the Spanish flu. Sorry, yeah, yep. that's right. Um, that you know, people would have thought twice about doing all this stuff again, but they don't. Mm. And uh, as you say, you know, we're looking at a parallel right now, really, um, and it's tragic. Yeah. Mm. 
terrible. But what can you say? I mean, yeah. Well, I'm loath to lean on on cliche, especially cliches about history and learning from it. But I mean, I'll come back to the story because we are yeah. we are looking at this this exploration and the prospect of an oil and an oil, particularly an oil field Navy, when this is dangled before Admiral Jake, well, he's an Admiral at the time, Jackie Fisher, he sees it as a chance to modernize, maybe even save the British as a naval powerhouse. And I, I felt through love oil and the fortunes of war, an argument could be made. This process influenced the course of war, subsequently the course of the 20th century, and of course, I'm preparing to chat to you and what's going on in the news like today, but <laughs> Australia Australia's just signed the lease on a brand new fleet of subs. And of course, those subs are primarily defined by their fuel source. I mean, yeah. how, do you, how do you hear this? How do you look at the ebbs and flows of history in that context? <laughs> well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the parallel couldn't be... <laughs> Yeah, it's extraordinary that it should be happening right now. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the next you know, technological breakthrough. And funny enough, if you look at if you look at if you go back to the period that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. I think what you do see is that underneath the surface, you're talking about contests that are in some ways decided by technology. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I think if you go way back. The idea was if I've got 100,000 men and you've got 50,000, I'm going to win. So that's the end of that argument. But now you're not seeing that at all. So we're looking at technology, technology edges. And, um, you know, if if you've got the wrong technology or, you know, you don't quite get it right, you're in a world of pain, basically. Mm. And you can see what happened to, to the British because Fisher said we've got to have bigger, faster, more powerful ships. So he built the dreadnoughts. Um, 18 of them were eventually built a lot. Um, this was going to dominate the, the, the oceans. So what happens? Like They go to the Dardanelles, they go to Gallipoli, and in one day the French use, lose three battleships and the British lose, effectively lose one to mines, things the size of a mooring boy basically floating and bobbing around in the Dardanelles. So suddenly the technologies you know, got ahead of them, mm. and there's submarines suddenly appear. That's that's a hell of a problem. And then hovering in the background, there's aircraft which are just starting to come into the whole thing. So technology is shifting, mm. and um, if you've got a um, a traditional uh, armed forces, there's a tendency. I think that you could see with the British Navy particularly to say, oh, no, you know, we're the British Navy, you know, we, we're the strongest Navy in the world, you know, we don't need to do anything. But actually, they certainly did. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think when you're looking at what's going on at the moment, technology is floating around the background, you know, you see it with drones and all this stuff that's going on, high mass, God only knows what else is floating around out there. Mm. So there's a, te- you know, it's a technological contest. And... Um, you know, nuclear submarines are the, the apex predator at the end of that. Mm. Is it the is it the the technology that is going to give whoever uses it the upper hand? Who would know? You know, it's uh, the technology is evolving all the time. Mm. And, uh, you know. 
It it feels like also it can be um and and one of the one of the things that I love about Love Oil and the Fortunes of War is that in the in the sort of the grand battle of of technology of you know um you know mighty empires and forces trying to you know effectively butt heads like toddlers um that there are people like there are there are people making these decisions they're making them on behalf of populations of people so I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn on the conversation here. Come back to the novel, and the way you've told this story, you build over a series of vignettes, um, and it's populated by a diverse and an expansive cast. You build up characters who play a role to set up another character, and it's it's really fascinating the way you move around the world through this. So before we get to some of these characters, I really was interested, what attracted you to this way of telling and building the narrative? (laughs) Well, um, this is probably not very encouraging for most readers, but the whole thing that started me on this journey a bit was that I realised I've got four children, married, got their own children now, busy. Um, And you realise talking to them that their experience of history at school has been not very exciting, to say the least. You know, they probably go back to the point where, you know, they learned the kings and queens of England and all that sort of thing. And you realise they don't really get history. And I thought, you know what, history is actually really exciting and some of the people that are involved in it are astonishing. Um, Can I write a book that will get them to turn the page, if you like? Um, And I'm not going to do that if I just repeat the facts. So I have to bring, I think you have to bring the characters alive if you can um, so that they, they feel like they're real people. So, so that's how I sort of really got, that's why it's got the dialogue and that's why it's, you know, some of it I've invented, but, you know, most of it's true. Um, the, the underlying story is true. Um, so I was trying to cram into what's a relatively short book, a hell of a lot of stuff, mm. and, but make it interesting enough to get people to turn the page, you know, and, uh, and, then realise that history is not just, you know, something that happened and doesn't affect us. That, you know, it's going on all the time. You need to pay attention. You need to look at what's happened in the past. And when you look, you can see um, in that past history, and you can see it with the characters in this book, that sometimes small mistakes can be very, you know, they can be terrible. Your personalities are, um, are deadly. You know, you get someone at the top of the apex of Putin, if you like, um, and you've got a hell of a problem. Mm. Um, so if you go back to to this, to my book, um, you can see Kaiser Bill. I mean, there should never have been a war between Germany and Britain. It, you know, they were all related to each other, for God's sake. Um, and Bismarck would never have let it happen, but Kaiser Bill sat there. Mm. Kaiser Bill was a lunatic. And, and so, you know, you couldn't get any, you were never going to get any sense out of it. And unfortunately, Edward VII died, and he probably might have had some of it, but George V didn't. And uh, I mean, I like to think, you know, if Edward had been there, he would have put his arm around Kyle and said, listen, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, what are, we, what are we trying to achieve? At the end of the First World War, if you really look at what happened, nobody achieved anything. In fact, 
nobody came out of it and said, well, wow, gee, we did well out of that. So, you know, the whole thing's driven by these personalities and the other things that surround them. And uh, you have a conflagration on your hands. Mm. I think also your scope allows you to explore a lot of the social milieu and You've talked a little there about some of the grand players. I'm actually going to take a little bit of license here because I, I want to draw us into a series of exchanges that might might seem inconsequential. Definitely in the larger story, they uh, they perhaps didn't affect the course of the 20th century. But um, well, th- these are this is this is an exchange between two perhaps supporting characters. We have Eleanor um, Darcy's first wife. She's devoutly religious, vehemently against the fauna and humidity of Australia. I think I'm being generous in her assessment there. And mm. her friend Brianna, a school teacher uh, at the local Catholic school. Before we get, before we get to this, I think you might know where I'm going with this. Before we get to the content, I was curious about though. How did you decide? I mean, I don't potentially. I'm guessing Brianna is potentially a, a completely made up character. Um, how did you craft the voices and and the particular style and tone of these two these two women? Well, yeah, that's very interesting. So, yeah, Brianna is invented, um, and but I. I have to confess I'm a bit of an environmentalist and it probably, I don't know if it comes through the book, but I just wanted to try and try and focus on some of the environmental issues that were just sort of floating around and you had Darwin just starting to happen. So you had a whole, um, you had a whole series of developments which were going on in the background in some ways that are really, I mean, I, uh, I call them rabbit holes. I went off on a bit of a tangent and, you know, it's pretty self-indulgent to do that sort of thing. But anyway, that's that's what I did. And, um, yeah, I, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in the background of the book, obviously, is, is the issue of the Irish question too, floating around and it's how significant it was for, for Australia. And so, um, yeah, that was all part of it as well. But... And the other thing that sort of I did because it just sort of amused me in a way was, and again, it's a bit self-indulgent, but um, was I thought the idea that Rockhampton might be seen as the gateway to hell was a sort of (laughs) intriguing idea. But then, you know, when you look at, if if you were a very religious Catholic and suddenly you're dumped in Rockhampton, you come from a very sophisticated society and, Mexico's very strong background, and you see this place, which is full of things like, you know, taipans and box jellyfish. You would think, you know, what are, you know, what is going on here? What is, how has this happened? You know, where have these creatures come from? Why are they here? And uh, so that was sort of a tangent in some ways, but actually, I thought it was quite important. The other issue that's floating around in the back of there is that um, I sort of was trying to say, look, unfortunately, for better or worse, most of this stuff, most of this, these problems and issues of whatever are caused by by um, by men and uh, yeah, men whose egos or whatever it is are out of control and. Um, you know, so I was sort of trying to point out that at the top of all these pyramids of pain and issues or whatever, and it's true today too, 
uh, men doing doing this stuff, mm. and they always have. And the, and the issue is that they've always done it. And uh, are they going to stop? Yeah, I mean, so I think I, I, they will. I'd probably begin by by um. You don't have to apologise for self indulgence. The fact that I, the fact that I've landed on this this exchange, this um, this conversation. Uh, it means that you, you've struck a chord. And I think often, you know, quite quite often the, the big players are well-trodden ground and, and exploring smaller characters, even if they are, um, you know, a, a tapestry of um, character traits is very interesting in these cases. And I was particularly, there was an exchange uh, or several exchanges between Brianna and, and Eleanor. Uh, one where Brianna scandalizes Eleanor with her open-mindedness about religion and her stories also of uh, murders of the local Durrumbull people. And mm. Eleanor takes this to heart. She's you, She sort of goes through a, a, a one or at least one or several dark nights of the soul. And when she confronts Darcy, he replies, of course I know, everyone knows, but no one speaks and neither should you. Forget about it, do you understand? Again, presumably an invented conversation, but reflective of an issue that it, it plagues the history of this country. Um, effectively, you're talking about frontier wars, you're talking about, uh, you know, historical events that we still struggle to acknowledge. Do you have a sense that these conversations could, like you've invented them, but could they have been historically accurate? Could this could people have been dealing with the idea that this is something that we need to confront even back then? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Darcy was a tough guy, mm. and um, I don't think there's any evidence that Darcy didn't Darcy ever did anything that didn't think he was going to make a dollar out of. Mm. And I guess he was carrying a lot of baggage, so you know that sort of partly explains why he might have felt like that. But um, so. Um, it didn't seem unlikely to me that Darcy would have gone, look, I'm here to get as much gold as I can get out of this mine as fast as I can get it and don't, you know, don't you start messing around with other issues. And um, so that seemed to me to ring true. Um, and everything that Darcy did before and afterwards um, would seem to indicate that that would have been his attitude. I mean, the funny thing about it was he never went out to the oil fields. So he did the whole, you know, I mean, I don't think he was particularly interested in it. He wouldn't have been interested in the history particularly. Mm -hmm. Just want to know how he could do it. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think Darcy was intent on getting Mount Morgan going and anyone that got in the way, watch out. Mm. That's fascinating. I almost got a sense, though. I mean, I, I feel like we could have, you could have played him as, uh, you know, as a, it's my right, but there was something in these conversations that even smacked of, of shame. He he knew what he was out for, and he was merciless, uh, you know, he was merciless in his attainment of it. But he didn't he didn't seem to be saying it's mine by right, um, and these people are inconsequential. It was there is a shame to this. Let's not talk about it. Well, yeah, look, I think that's right. I think he didn't, you know, he didn't know what was going on, um, and. He just thought, you know, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. And um, whereas it's interesting because, you know, the, one of the partners in the, in the mine was, of course, Walter, Walter Hall. And that 
So Walter Hall had a completely different sort of attitude. They were always a family that were concerned about um, the people around them. And, and, uh, and of course, that became the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, which is there today, still doing fantastic things. Mm. So you had two completely different sort of people. And uh, there's not that much about Walter Hall in there, but, you know, I've tried to be accurate about, you know, what sort of people they were. And they were terrific people. You know, they, I don't think they, they, were, they were not living in, in, um, in Rockhampton for very, you know, they were going backwards and forwards. But so I don't think they particularly would, would be focused on the Aboriginal thing, but, but they were focused on the well-being of the people that were around them and, and uh, you know, they did care about what they did with their money and uh, they were just two completely different people. But oh, I, it looks as if Darcy just said, well, you do what you want to do and I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm. <laughs> Let's get on with it. It was fascinating, Paul. And look, I've 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 picked on a vignette, and I think maybe that should be a guide for the listener that love, oil, and the fortunes of war is so rich that we can have this much of the conversation focused on. Let's let's be honest; that was a, a few pages of the narrative leading to some of the grander action. I'm um, I'm not going to try and pull out every single vignette. I'll have you here all night, Paul. But I will yeah. let people know. I'm speaking with Paul Ashford Harris. We are discussing his new historical novel, Love Oil and the Fortunes of War. Paul, it's been absolutely terrific. Thank you for taking the time with me this evening. Well, thank you for taking the time because um, you know you have taken a lot of time, and and it's a tricky it's a tricky subject, a tricky tricky book, and it does wander all over the place. But look, you know. It is what it is, so uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. That is it. What an incredible conversation there with Paul Ashford Harris. Thank you so much again to Paul for joining me. Paul's new book is called Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. You are here on the Final Draft podcast and it is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Keep in touch with Final Draft. You can email us. You can email finaldraft at 2ser.com or on the socials. Just look for Final Draft 2SER. And, uh, well, my name's Andrew Pope. Look, I am going to be back. I'm, I'm never going to stop reading. I'm never going to stop coming and talking to you about reading, if you'll have me. So join me next week. Until then, happy reading. Bye for now. <laughs>